First of all, I think that being educated means being smart enough not to try to define being educated all in ten minutes. Still, I volunteered and I faced that challenge with you this morning. The speaker once asked students in this chapel, you have come to college to get an education. How will you know whether you've gotten one? Students may reply, oh, that's easy. When I fulfill all of my requirements, get my degree, then that's my education. After all, I've been in school for 16 years, soaking up facts and taking tests and writing papers. Simply surviving shows that I must be an educated person. Or you may say, when I enter the workforce and land my first real job, then that shows I'm educated. I'm successful among other people who consider themselves to be educated. I must be educated too. Or you may say that uh, I know that I've gotten an education when I find that I prefer going to art galleries instead of stock car races. Or listening to Rachmaninoff instead of rock. My tastes have improved. These aren't necessarily wrong perceptions of education, but they're only partial perceptions. Certainly, persistence to graduation does mean something about your pursuit of real education. It's almost a case of he that endures unto the end shall be saved. Uh, you've, you've pursued it and you have something to show for it. Also, success in your, in your work, in your employment, often relates to diligence shown in school and to value that you have gained through study. You are able to work competitively with your peers. And also, a refined taste can be an outcome of learning the dimensions of the world of art that lift the human spirit. These are just three external evidences that some people use to measure education. Yet we all know that it's far more. We'll use three words to guide our thinking for the next few moments. Knowing, doing, and being. Knowing, doing, and being. Education is sometimes thought of as learning, a gaining of knowledge and facts. As you might have been a seventh grader coming home to report to your parents, today I learned the names and locations of all the major rivers in the world. Or yours truly just a few days ago learned that the California State Bird lives on the Master's College campus. It's the California Valley Quail. Facts, facts, and more facts. We begin amassing facts when we're young, beginning with those building blocks of all knowledge, words, numbers, and shapes. And we keep on learning things throughout our whole lifetime. Tremendous opportunities for input. Facts help us to learn more facts. To be educated then is to know, to have a command of a wide range of facts. To be educated is also to be able to do or perform. It is skill related. 
Here's a partial listing of some of the many skills that are part of an educated person. Verbal skills, computational skills, social skills, physical skills, organizational skills, reasoning skills, aesthetic skills, generalizing skills, relational skills, and yes, for us, even teaching skills. We often end up working in careers that require those skills in which we excel. And believe me, even being a parent requires all of these skills. As I was working through them, I, I thought of just parenting and how each one of these is involved in, in that role. These, I believe, relate to the breadth of education. Your general education requirements in lower and higher education seek to teach you in many areas, building knowledge and skills by working with facts and objects and concepts and ideas. Knowing and doing are bound together with a less tangible but more important dimension of education, that of being. The truly educated person must be one who realizes that life is more than what and how, but also why. True fulfillment of all that we sense we were meant to be as human beings comes with a discovery of purpose. Those of us who know Christ as our Savior and Lord find in Him and in the Word of God the true answers to life's essential questions. Who am I? Where do I fit in? Why am I here? Where is happiness to be found? And what is my destiny? The natural man outside of a personal relationship with his Creator also seeks purpose and fulfillment. And in the last few years has used the term self-actualization. And to a great extent believes that education will give this to him. He looks to himself. He looks to earthly wisdom for the truth about life. Higher education is in the mad pursuit of knowledge and skills and some form of answer to these important questions. Actually, most higher education today is actually a misnomer. <laughs> In ruling out God, they lower the whole business of the pursuit of truth. The Bible reveals that only the Spirit of Truth, the Holy Spirit, can illuminate man to truth. The Word of God is the Christian's textbook for being. There we have the ideals set forth, as well as the pattern set by Christ, and the example shown by godly men and women. Jesus reminded his disciples that we are in the world. Here we are. Here we live. Here we work. Here we raise our families. Here we serve our fellow man. 
and by being educated in the various knowledges and skills of our world, we are helped to do these things adequately, if not well. Yet, Jesus' reminder goes on to include the fact that we are not of the world. We are in the world, but not of the world. We are citizens of another country, and thus the center of our striving to be educated persons must be the things of God and all that pertains to life and godliness. In Him, we live and move and have our being. We have physical life. In Him, we have fullness of life. As will be shown this week, in being educated, we do not seek a place for ourselves. Rather, we seek to honor and glorify God and to serve Him with our whole heart and soul and mind and strength. I can remember walking on the plane and taking my seat as we began to take off, and I turned to the fellow that was next to me, who was across one seat as we sat in that three-seat row, and as I looked at him, I noticed that he was an unusually large man, capable, I'm sure, of providing warmth in the winter and shade in the summer. <laughs> and. Uh, as I got to know him, I discovered that he was friendly and jovial, and I was grateful for that. I'm always happy when someone that's bigger than I am is friendly. And we began to talk as the plane moved into the air. And as we talked, I found out what he did for a living, or what he does. And he said, I'm a contractor. He says, I live in San Francisco, but I'm commuting down to Los Angeles because I'm currently supervising the building of the San Gabriel Dam project, which is going on right now in the greater L.A. area. And then he asked me what I do, and I said, well, I'm a college teacher. And his already warm face beamed even brighter as he looked at me, and I could tell that he was envious. And he said to me, he says, you know, he says, I've always wanted to learn that stuff. He said, but I got, a, I got a family at a young age and I was forced into a mold of making a living. And he said, now I'm old enough and financially able. He says, I'm going back to college. He says, I trained early on, but I'm going back for an education. There are so many areas that I'm curious about that I want to learn. And so we talked as the plane flew on and began to share some of these areas. And I was impressed by that. The fact that here is a man that desires an education in his mid-50s. And I began to think about contrasting what training and education are. What's the difference between the two? And I know I run the risk of not being particularly popular as I address this subject. A 1984 survey that was done by the National Council of Education concluded this. Today's student populations are less well prepared for life, more vocationally oriented, and apparently more materialistic than their immediate predecessors. Materialism, the almighty dollar. You've probably heard your parents say, well, when I was a child, and I'm going to say that, when I was in college, things were different. People were marching around in old blue jeans and t-shirts and carrying placards, 
And everyone was intensely interested in the intellectual and political scene of our country. But I remember hearing Dr. Francis Schaeffer address the swing on college campuses in our current culture, and he said that the 1980s will be characterized as the decade of passive materialism. All the hippies have given up their placards and have now bought foreign cars, three-bedroom homes, color television sets, and they've all settled into suburbia, and now everything is passive. And it scared him to death because he felt that the more passive we become, the more vulnerable we become as a people. We're no longer looking out. We're no longer intellectually astute in terms of what's happening around us. If I were to define training this morning, I would say that it's learning a specific task or developing a specific skill. It's honing in on one particular area of life. And it has as its primary goal employment or moving into the workplace. And there's nothing wrong with this. The Apostle Paul taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, that he prepared for the workplace and that he worked with his hands. It's a noble thing. It's interesting in communist China that Mao Zedong, when he wrote the Red Book that governed their activity there in China, he said that all the white-collar people in that culture should be forced to work with their hands on a regular basis so that they didn't become too idealistic in their thinking to have a literal down-to-earth experience. And there's nothing wrong with training. But education, on the other hand, has the idea of diversity and balance. It's understanding as much as is humanly possible to understand about God's creation. Training looks toward employment. Education looks toward life and what life is all about. Socrates said that the unexamined life is not worth living. To get down to the issues of life, contrasting training and education, first of all, training will help you to become a cog in the system. It'll help you take your place on that big industrial line that we call the American system. And whatever that place might be, it focuses on the gross national product primarily and helps you to achieve that end at the end of the line, wherever it comes out. Education, on the other hand, will help you to understand the system. Education will give you what I call an out-of-body experience. Somebody goes, huh? That sounds pretty good. You know what an out-of-body experience is? When you read writings, especially by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, you understand that some people come to the point of death. And right at the point of death, it's like their inner being rises out of the body and they look down on the operating room and they see everything that's going on. And uh, they analyze it. They have a bird's eye view as they have that out-of-body experience. Education does that. Education allows you to rise above the system, to analyze what's going on in your world. And analyzation is the first point in terms of reaching the ability to change. You cannot change what you don't understand. And if your goal at the Master's College is to begin to change the world, you must first of all make it your test I can remember as a young child showing uh, a young lady that I liked her by going up and punching her in the arm. 
Now, it's obvious that by doing that, I had a gross lack of understanding as to what the needs of that young lady were and what she would perceive as affection. And as I got older, I began to understand that. But you see, if I hadn't gotten a basic understanding, I wouldn't have been able to meet the need where I found it. And if you would meet the need, you must first of all understand it. Another contrast between training and education is that training is concrete, but education is abstract. What do I mean by that? Education is con- or training is concrete. It deals with people, objects, processes as they are. It doesn't attempt to explain them. It just intends to perform or to work with them. It's like Wendell Johnson has said, to a mouse, cheese is cheese. That's why mouse traps are so effective. Education, on the other hand, deals with intangibles. It deals with the what-ifs. It deals with a world of ideas. And today's ideas on the college campus will become tomorrow's lifestyle in our country. If you don't believe it, look at the ideas of the 1920s and 30s and 40s, and you will see those practiced out today in the grassroots to the letter. This is the spawning ground for ideas. This is where it all happens. You can be a part of that enterprise, that educational enterprise of molding and shaping and carrying out the ideas of tomorrow. Training is performance-oriented. Education is thinking-oriented. You can learn to perform, you can learn to do a prescribed task, or you can move toward enlightenment. You can learn to think. It's like the person once said, when I works, I works hard. When I sits, I sits loose. And when I think, I fall asleep. (laughs) Alfred Korzybski said, two ways to slide through life, believe everything or doubt everything. Both ways will save you from thinking. Thinking is developing that that critical apparatus whereby we're able to examine, we're able to dissect. We develop thinking. Training limits social mobility, but education helps one become all things to all men. If you want to be limited socially in the future, hone in on one little area. And in education, we describe it as knowing more and more about less and less so you know absolutely everything about nothing. Hone in on that one little area, and you will become rather rigid in terms of your ability to move across social lines. But education will allow you to become all things to all men in a greater sense. Not that you'll ever achieve that goal 100%. But you will be able to move in broader and broader circles that you, than you ever dreamed possible because of that ability to break out of specific prescribed moles. And then a pragmatic comparison. Training will limit your job options for the future. Education will keep your options alive. It will keep your options open. You're pretty much locked in when you train to do one specific thing. And if you move out of that specific area, it's necessary to retool to move into another area. But a broad education will allow you to keep your options for life open. 
and alive. You won't have to retool as much. You can move in broader circles. You can jump from one discipline to another because you have a breadth in terms of your preparation. I think that's important. The 1980 census told us a number of things about the American population. One thing it told us is that the average person in America switches careers three times in the course of a lifetime. And I would dare say that if you would think about your own parents, even in this particular setting, you would probably notice that your parents have switched careers at least once in the course of their lifetime. If they haven't, you're within the minority of most people. So keep your options alive, and you keep your options alive through an education. And I think that's so important for a young person. If I were sitting here talking with my own children today, these are the things that I would tell them in terms of contrasting this. Take the opportunity that you have now. Remember, training is for work. Education is not only for work, but it's for life as well. I to say something about sacred and secular in learning. The purpose of Christian liberal arts education and learning is to subdue as many subjects as possible to the mind of Christ. Just as Christian missionaries and evangelists go out into the world to win converts and make them servants of Christ, Christian scholars invade secular or non-biblical subjects in order to subordinate these to the mind of Christ. So Christian study, like evangelism, is an invasion and a conquest, a crusade. Study is not just to equip the saints. It's to impose saintliness on the unsubdued or rebellious parts of the earth, as Christ is going to do politically and militarily at the Battle of Armageddon, a prospect that, as Christians, we should all keep in mind. Our task as students of the truth is to seek and save that which was lost, meaning subject matters that have gone astray from their relationship to God. When I walk into a classroom to teach a secular story, such as Ernest Hemingway's Soldier's Home, I feel a sense of excitement like going into battle. The battle is between the truth of God and the unsubdued part of the world that the story reveals. I tell my students that Hemingway discovered the falsehood of what we call post-millennial theology through going through World War I, and, and in uh, his uh, story, he was showing us the falsehood of that theology. I might just say a few words about what that theology means. Postmillennialism is the theory that Jesus will not return to the earth until after the kingdom age. Now what that does is to leave history in the hands of the secularists. That's what it means. That's what postmillennial theology... To leave history in the hands of Gentiles who are secularists. I don't buy that. I intend to invade secular fields today and to invade it with authority backed by military power after Christ's return. So my activity as a Christian today is an avant-garde activity aiming at the takeover of the world with Jesus in a resurrection body. This must be very clear on this because I'm not passive when it comes to learning. Uh, <laughs> But Hemingway never uses the word post-millennial and wasn't thinking a thought about theology when he wrote the story. 
So it's my job and our job to jump into this story if we have theological insight and training and apply the right concepts to the story at the right time. That's the way we invade or take over that particular field established by that story. But there's no shortcut to learning. Before we can subdue our subjects, we have to subdue our minds. Before you can get into conquest, you have to suffer first. That's the lesson of the cross. You can't be in the resurrection as Jesus was in the resurrection until you suffer first with him. And a lot of that suffering goes on right here when you have to meet exam schedules. It's right to be depressed by your studies. It's right to get disturbed about the prospect of an exam because Christ suffers first and then he wins the victory. And that's what you want to do when you study and take an exam. Uh, Christ tells us that we're blessed if we mourn or grieve. I never learn anything, but uh, I agonize over it first. There's a word in the New Testament, agony, meaning a wrestling match. And there's a wrestling match going on in our, inside our minds between truth and error. You don't recover from error or repent just like that. You try to the best you can, but you've got to work out the errors and come into the truth. And there's a certain grief that goes along with it. All the worthwhile arts and sciences have an agony of mind or body, like athletics, for example. There's an agony of body to, tra uh, agony of body to train yourself to be an athlete. The same thing goes on in your mind. Or, in, uh, for that matter, in music. In my house, I own a Baldwin acrosonic piano my parents bought for my sister in 1954, and I play a little. It's a kind of hobby or recreation, and I sometimes make tapes to criticize how well I'm doing. Sometimes I do a little bit better than average, and I rejoice over it like breathing fresh air because there's a considerable sorrow even in this hobby. You just can't get away from sorrow. It's part of life. Sometimes I make the phrases that satisfy my mind. It's the musical truth, uh, which comes like a woman's pain in childbearing. And if I were a, a woman, I'd be very proud of that pain because this, this suffering is a meaningful suffering that produces something. So God gives us the privilege of subduing our particular parts of the world to the mind of Christ if we're willing to get involved by concentration or sorrow of mind. The role of faith is to convince us beforehand that the sorrow will eventually end and the truth will come to life. Faith is truth in advance, which the Bible calls substance of things not seen. I'd like to say a few things about that substance. The substance of Jesus' resurrection body, for example, is the first kind of body that we'll eventually inherit. And it's in the mind of faith now, and no two of us are alike with regard to how much that substance of things not seen or Jesus' resurrection body is in our minds. It takes time to develop faith. Uh, I once uh, gave a Bible study in Texas. A girl came up afterwards and told me, she'd come out of a Presbyterian background, and she said, before I heard you, I thought Jesus was just a spirit because of the teaching she got. But when she heard me, she could sense that resurrection body coming out of my mouth because I had that faith in my mind. And it takes a certain time to develop these substances inside the mind. And it takes a certain sorrow or concentration in order to get these substances into your mind. For example, I carry around the eight people who survived the flood, the Diluvian family, as though my head were the ark. Now, those eight unseen people got into my mind through a sorrow or concentration of mind. Where did that sorrow start? I'll tell you where it started. When I first became a fundamentalist, and discovered the biblical concept of origins, I couldn't figure out why Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and all their wives were not at the foundation of secular world history, which is exactly where they ought to be. The reason that the, that the flood and the reason that the family of Noah is not at the foundation of world history 
The reason for that is human rebellion on the part of the Gentile secular establishment at our great universities. They've taken Noah and his family out of history. And so I grieved over that. It troubled me when I was a Christian because I, it troubled me that family got into my mind. Does not thrive on vague rumors. If you don't study or grieve over a topic, it tends to become a flatland or a vague rumor to you. And faith doesn't thrive on things like saying, Oh, yes, I agree the flood happened. The evangelical community says that it happened, and I believe whatever the evangelical community said. Now, that is not vital faith. Faith may start there by just wanting to be part of the Christian community, but it goes beyond that to transforming your head into an ark full of precious substances of things not seen. And eventually God sees to it that these substances climb out of your mind and appear around you. Your faith comes to light. I may get a chance to speak or write about Noah, and eventually, believe it or not, the man himself is going to turn up. Do you realize that? That's called resurrection. In one of the resurrection settings, I might get a chance to overhear Noah and Shem talking about Shem's war club, Yagrish. You've never heard of that before, but Shem had a war club called Yagrish. It's not in the scriptures, but Shem is not just a scriptural character. He's one of the founding fathers of all the nations, and therefore you can figure certain things out about him. Well, I might uh, get a chance to overhear Jeremiah talking to Shem about whether Shem's war club, Yagrish, has something to do with that verse that God gave Jeremiah concerning Mesopotamia, you are my war club. Well, as a matter of fact, Shem's war club had everything to do with that verse that God gave Jeremiah. And because I've studied Yagrush, I'll be able to appreciate what Shem and Jeremiah are talking about. And a certain part of God's way of glory will not be lost on me. It might be lost on somebody else, but it won't be lost on me. The sequence of faith begins by hearing about something, then thinking about it, then studying it by letting it trouble you. It's good to be troubled for a time. And see, letting it trouble you. Then speaking or writing about it, finally seeing it happen. Study or grieving over it is essential because it gives heft or solidity, a weight of glory to your mind, and no two of us are alike with regard to how much or which part of God's glory is in our minds. Now, I'd like to illustrate this for a moment with a, an example out of secular literature, which is my field. Take the novel The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells and the movie made from it. You can learn a lesson from that 1953 movie, believe it or not. It can put pressure on you to determine whether or not certain substances of faith are in your mind. If you've seen the movie, you recall that there's a denominational clergyman in it who is more or less unprepared for space invaders. First, we see him conducting a routine church social dance when everybody's watch stops. There I am. 1103. I don't know if I'm right on that or not, but everybody's watch stops because of the effect of the falling Martian cylinders. Then we see him reciting the 23rd Psalm as he tries to make peace with the Martians who do what? Have you seen the movie? They incinerate him on the spot. Now that's an interesting object lesson. You can learn something from that. <laughs> that sequence in the War of the Worlds can be a test to see how much of the substance of Christian prophecy has grown up in your mind as of now. Part of the substance of faith is that we Christians don't just go to heaven. It's fine to talk about going to heaven, but there's more to it than that. After the rapture and the judgment of Christian works, we participate in Christ's return to conquer the earth in our superhuman resurrection bodies. So we have an unmistakable space invader feature coming back out of heaven again to conquer the earth, according to that prophecy in the letter to Thyatira, to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Uh, in the return, we're destined to stop everybody's watch. 
not through ugliness, but through indestructible power and beauty. As for the poor incinerated clergyman, the movie and Wells' original novel suggest that he's unprepared for the Martians because he refuses to look through a telescope too. And that is, like the World Council of Churches, he'll have no part of apocalyptic truth about returning with Christ. That particular body of professing Christians will not accept this idea of coming back because they're in passive compromise with the world. And they don't want a doctrine that tells them that the world is going to be stopped dead in its cracks by Christ's return. See? Okay, the, uh, the Apostle Paul tells us plainly that works based on wood, hay, and stubble, you know the passage, 1 Corinthians 3, wood, hay, and stubble, such as World Council of Churches prophetic doctrine, will be incinerated, burnt to a crisp. That's what the Apostle Paul says. So the war of the worlds has this power to draw out of you whether the substance of Christ's future return has grown up in your mind yet. Now to return again to our subject, the wood, hay, and stubble Paul refers to is precisely what you get rid of by grieving over the truth through faithful study. If you want to get past wood, hay, stubble into gold, silver, precious stones, you've got to do some hard thinking. You've got to let yourself be troubled by certain questions of fact. Real liberal arts study is an exercise in creating gold, silver, and precious stones from Bible truth inside the mind under the testing circumstances of your subject matter that you study in your courses. If you don't study, now get this, if you don't study, concentrate, or grieve one way or another, you become an airhead full of vaguely defined straw. That's what happens. And when the fire of the great change comes, all the vague stuff, all the vague rumors that you never grieved over, therefore you never formed it into gold, silver, precious stones, just goes poof like that. You're saved, but so is by fire. I Meaning this all goes up. The airhead who hasn't grieved over the truth. Now let me define the airhead here just in closing. <laughs> the airhead gossips about what other people believe. Uh, have you ever found people like that? They talk about somebody published a book and they never get into the subject matter. The airhead gossips about what other people believe rather than coming to grips with what he or she believes. You can always tell when someone has been grieving over the truth because he has at least the beginning of a testimony. And it's his own testimony rather than just floating social rumor. I invite all of you to develop testimonies by becoming concentrated stu uh, students and therefore to develop gold, silver, and precious stones in the treasure house of your minds. Well, I trust this morning as we begin these three chapels that uh, maybe you've gotten a little glimpse into the heart of some of the people that are part of the faculty here. You know, one of the things, let me just reiterate a couple of things that were said this morning because I think they're so very, very important. You know, uh, Shakespeare in one of his most famous plays, and I believe it was in Macbeth, Macbeth is talking and he says, to be or not to be, that is the question. And you see, you need to understand that the Logos in John 1.1 is not just being, but also gives all meaning. The Jesus Christ of the second person of the Trinity gives not only 
meaning to life, but he also gives being, and therefore that legitimizes every single field of study that we as Christian people can give our hearts and lives to. Also, remember this, young people, that training, from a very practical standpoint, as Mr. Mackey said, can allow you to be involved in one particular area of life. But just because you are trained to do one thing does not mean that you are an educated person. One of the greatest examples of this from a pragmatic standpoint today is to look at those steel workers in northern Ohio and in Pennsylvania. Those people today, or for many years, along with their fathers and grandfathers, trained to do a specific job. Now the economy has changed. Now they have no vocation. You see, if you polish your verbal skills, your organizational skills, your computational skills, your reasoning skills, your relational skills, those are the kinds of skills that can be transformed from one particular vocation to another. I don't care if you're a manager, I don't care what you do, those kinds of skills are the kinds of things that you can take with you and will allow you, as a dynamic, a dynamic economy changes, will allow you and your family to adjust. You see, education is diversity and balance. It looks towards life rather than doing a specific thing. Then obviously what Dr. Cookie said this morning about the fact that our job as Christian men and women, one of our greatest challenges is to subdue the world around us in terms of bringing our, the mind of Christ and, and, and bringing that to bear upon the different subject matter that we are called upon to interface with. It's a great challenge. Don't look at your subjects as being mere, or mere, secular, mere secular things. Look at them once again as an opportunity for you as a Christian to be able to bring the mind of Christ and therefore to have the opportunity to subdue those disciplines today that are not pointed toward the Lord Jesus Christ. What a great way to begin chapel this week. We trust that Wednesday will even be greater. What I want to do now is to close in a word of prayer and then Russ Moore is going to come and talk to you a little bit about our missions conference that will be coming up in a few weeks. Okay, so let's just bow together in prayer. Father, thank you so much.